what do you want to do with your life? And he said, I want to own an agency, a digital agency that helps clients and people. My response was, why the hell would you want to do that? People are hard. It's not scalable in any sense of the word. And owning an agency sounds like my idea of hell. It must have been hard as well when you grew and you suddenly had lots of people to deal with because that's the hardest bit, right? And it was almost like this existential crisis, semi-catalyst epiphany that came to me of, wow, Disney is all about greed. You're listening to the Confessions of an Agency Owner podcast. I'm Chris Ailey, your host, and today my guest is my good friend, David Mannheim, exited agency founder, published author, and now founder of SaaS company, Made with Intent. After scaling and selling his agency user conversion to Brain Labs, David took some time out, went to Disney World a few times, grew a beard, and then wrote a book all about personalization in e-commerce, which is due to be released this summer. And alongside that, He's also launching a platform called Made With Intent that uses customer intent, similar to XG in football, to unlock personalization and understand how close a customer is to conversion. It's a great listen, and if you're interested in personalization, why people get into agencies, why people leave agencies, it's well worth a listen. Enjoy. Let's cut this down then. So what I'm thinking is, your story, CRO agency, user conversion, yeah. Sold it to Brain Labs for millions of pounds. Was it tens of millions of pounds? Went to Disney World a hundred times. Grew a beard. Wrote a book. And now you're launching a new platform called Made With Intent. Is that your life so far? Yeah, I mean, you've exaggerated a few areas, but yeah, uh, okay. I'd say so. Maybe we won't call it a beard then. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely a beard, like a big Jewish, lovely woven beard. That had croissants sticking in and out of it all the time. I didn't know you had to wash the beard. Yeah, you did have food in it last time we spoke, actually. Yeah. (laughs) Let's start at the beginning then. So why did you, how and why did you set up your agency? Well, it was always an accident, really, Chris, being honest with you. Um, I don't know whether it's your typical, I was a freelancer and I got too many clients and maybe a little bit too greedy. So then I, when we got more clients, I hired a person. And the end of year one, we had four. And the end of year two, we had... 12 and blah 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 it just grew out of control i always when was this then what year was this 2015 oh okay so it wasn't it was still quite recent yeah it wasn't donkeys ago i guess but yeah for me it was always an accident i i so i specifically remember a conversation with my friend lee turver who now owns an agency and it was before the premiere of the avengers uh at liverpool one and we were in pizza hut together and we were both working at an agency at the time and I asked him, I was like, Lee, what do you want to do with your life? And he said, I want to own an agency, a digital agency that helps clients and people. And he's, he's doing that now and he's doing really well. My response was, why the hell would you want to do that? People are hard. It's not scalable in any sense of the word. And owning an agency sounds like my idea of hell. Three years later, I owned an agency. <laughs> and I still, you know what? I kept that consistent message at least throughout the six years of which I found and ran and owned it, which was I never wanted this thing. I saw it as a burden. Um, and even to the point where we were talking with, uh, with the wonderful Dan Gilbert uh, over at Brain Labs, uh, he always said, why do you want to sell? And I always reclaim that story, which is I never wanted the thing in the first place. It just was a pure accident. Uh, a lucky one, I guess. I don't know. It must have been hard as well when you grew and you suddenly had lots of people to deal with because that's the hardest bit, right? Dealing with people. 
It is. It was a little bit like you're a barrister at Starbucks and you're really good at making coffee. And then suddenly someone says, oh, you're going to be a manager now because you're really good at making coffee. It's a completely different skill set. I've never been a manager before. I've never dealt with people. I'm just really good at making coffee. And that's exactly what I, how I translate it. You know, that's how I, how I feel about it is that I was just really good at CRO, I felt. Uh, and I was quite creative in my approach. You know, I had this blend of you know, analytical one side and creative of the other. Now I felt like I could do this thing really well. Uh, and I had a good approach to it, uh, a product-based approach, which I don't know, it was product a thing back then, who knows, um, where you get multidisciplinary skill sets together to, f- to build an Avengers, ironic, isn't it, uh, <laughs> like team together uh, to, to create solutions for clients. Uh, I thought it, it worked really well, but goodness me, it didn't half take its toll. Uh, it's not what I expected. It's not what I wanted. Um, so, yeah, but you learn over the years, don't you? You know, I had help from others. Oh, yeah, you get older and wiser. So what, at what point was, like, the, the great escape then? What time did you sort of think, well, actually, I'm just going to target this to sell rather than running it? Was it wasn't even about targeting it to sell more than anything. So I remember uh, it was, in, like, COVID always plays the biggest part in everything, doesn't it? But in 2021, I remember saying to my, my MD and a few of the senior leadership team at the time, I need this break. I need a break. I just need a break. I need a break. Um, and it was 2020, actually. And um, I geared up for a three-month sabbatical to go touring around Italy with my wife and them, uh, three-year-old, I think Max was, three-year-old, so pre-school, basically. I was like, this is my only time to go and do this tour because Max doesn't have a school. So we geared up for that. And my date of departure was meant to be May the 4th, 2020. May the 4th uh, be with you. It's all very ironic. This, it's all it? Disney orientated, isn't it? <laughs> but if you remember, was it 2020? I forget the dates now. My memory's awful. But Northern Italy was the first that was hit badly yeah, uh, yeah. with the pandemic. And so that three-month tour got cancelled. And I don't know whether this would be true to this day, but we sold later in the same... Well, we had conversations later in the same year of selling. And I don't know whether if I wouldn't have taken the sabbatical, whether I would have eventually sold or not but you know the world works in mysterious ways didn't have the sabbatical ended up needing a a final break uh, more than anything so yeah that was probably the catalyst so did you have to stay on or anything after that sale or i stayed on for a little bit yeah uh, two days a week for 12 months just to oversee the transition but being honest by then the agency wasn't me you know mm-hmm. it was it was the senior leadership team uh, it was a great team of individuals who really ran the business and i was nothing more than a figurehead at that point in time anyway so so yeah the the transition was pretty pretty seamless i would say so then you went into semi-retirement <laughs> i wouldn't call it that what did you uh, do then what got you up in the morning once you once you'd sold out well, we had a we had a new kid we had a new one uh, zachary and he was born i think it was the same week that we ended up signing the papers or something like that so obviously just dedicated a lot of time to him because i mean i'm going to be honest you know with max my first born Felt like I was present, but I wasn't present. Felt yeah, like I get he, that. He was, uh, I don't know. Some, there was definitely some form of neglect in my mind anyways. And I recognize that. I've had therapy for a good four or five years, and I absolutely advocate it. But if you get a second chance, you take the second chance. So uh, 
went a lot, you know, did a lot with Zachary, our newborn. We couldn't go anywhere. We were totally locked down. So, you know, when the papers were signed, it's like you, you would normally go on holiday or, or celebrate something nice or you go to a restaurant. Didn't do any first world problems, but didn't do any of that. So we just stayed at home. And, and had, I, had shipping packages delivered every day, did you? Yeah, buy oh, some Amazon, stuff? Amazon every Amazon single day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, it, was a, it was a tough one. I don't know. I, I think I was very mellow. I read a lot of books. Uh, I, uh, I just spoke to a lot of people uh, just to stay a little bit sane. I didn't really do anything, being honest. Nothing of no. Obviously, I, I still had the, the uh, responsibility of working a couple of days a week. And I was looking for... Something interesting. Being honest, Chris, I wanted to work for Disney so badly. Uh, I spoke to a few people there. I applied, I think it was about 12 applications I made in the end uh, to go and work for Disney. But what, to wear not... a suit at the park or to do something more? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. It was just like, I don't know, to, to carry on with whatever. Just I was to doing, do something, anything. Anything. Relationship marketing, digital marketing. Who knows? Um, but it's almost like I had the best CV in the world of creating this business and getting it acquired and working with people and blah, 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 blah. But also the worst CV in the world is that I've never worked in a retailer, just four retailers, you know, I've never been in the mixer as it were. So, uh, so I never even got a single interview. Uh, so oh, wow. I don't think it was the path for me, which was a shame. Uh, bizarre, bizarre. Well, and then is that when you then started to write the book then? Yeah. So I went to Disney later that year uh, when, it, when it reopened, I think it was October, November. Um, and because it was post COVID, have you, have you been to Disney world before you have, haven't you? I've been to, I've been to Disney world. Yeah. Twice. Once as a child yeah. and once as an adult. Yeah. Um, and I don't know how you felt, but cause I go every year, I see the little changes. Like I can see, I don't know. I notice when a sign is different or if a door's painted a different color, you just, you just become a creature out of it. I'm so uncultured. And because I go every year, I see all these changes and that year, the changes were so significant because I hadn't been in 18 months, 24 months. It was over a period where they closed the parks because of the pandemic. And my goodness, the amount of fiscal changes that they made was so overt and obvious that I felt like a number, not a guest. And it was almost like this existential crisis, semi-catalyst epiphany that came to me of, wow, Disney is all about greed, isn't it? You know, an example was um, the change where you used to have what we call fast passes, where you get three rides to ride uh, at the front of the queue, basically. You get to skip the queue. And that was completely complimentary and had been for 20 years. They scrapped all that, and now that's a paid-for experience. But only for, only for the majority of the rides, there's two rides per park where you have to ride per person per ride. So in that time period, what you found is that on average, you were paying 40% more uh, per day at a park. Those were the fiscal results from, from Disney. To get how many free rides? Because my experience, we had a slightly different experience at Disney World when we went with my, my son basically, um, you know, he's, he's disabled and we had the amazing charity called Starlight paid yeah, for us like to go. Foundation, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So they, they gave him a wish and we, and we, we put Disney World as yeah. you do. Uh, and they, they paid for us all to go over to Disney World and we stayed in this amazing place called Give Kids the World um, which was a, a like a village set up by it was actually a Jewish ex-Jewish prisoner of war in the World War who built it's a lovely story actually he uh, ran a hotel and he got asked by someone could they facilitate um, this girl who had leukemia to stay at the hotel while they, she went to Disney World and they really struggled to make it happen in time and this girl unfortunately died 
And he was like, I'm never going to let this happen again. And he set up this place, and you can only go there once, called Give Kids the World Village. And we, we got to stay there, so we lived a real fairy tale. Yeah. But back to the queues, we got what was called an Aladdin's Pass. Oh, wow. So basically, really we... Well, it's top secret, yeah. No, so we, we didn't have to queue for anything. We literally went to the front of the queue. But even with that, there's no way we could have done all that in a day. Like, mm. I can't believe that people queue how long they queue for. They probably get to go on, like, two rides, right? So yeah, that's you why... you can't do it all in a day. So that's why no. people, people pay for that for That, that premium. Yeah, exactly, yeah. yeah. So uh, I think it's 50% of all guests use a fast pass experience, which is now a paid-for experience. So their profits have actually gone up uh, ex- exponentially because of this. Anyway, getting to this point, like, it, was, it was almost like an epiphany of, wow, it's all about greed. Mm. And if you remember at that point in time, Man United, my other love was going through this crisis of the Super League happening. And which, losing 6-1 yeah. six, six to Spurs as, as well, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, well, we don't need to... We don't six need to or seven. Uh, I can, who knows? Who knows? Who knows? Well, Google probably remembers. Um, <laughs> we'll find out. <laughs> <laughs> so these two things, like my identity, I mean, you don't need to Google it. I can see you, Tiger. Uh, sorry, it was 6-1, yeah. That was during lockdown, though. Oh, these two, two things that I really identify with, Disney and Man United. Um, destroying the experience, both the fan and the guest experience, with money, with commercial greed, felt wrong to me. So I, from that, I'm sure trip, you'd think... bought a hot dog at Disney World before this, though, right? Oh yeah, like because I mean, I remember the water's four dollars. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, a hot dog's about twelve, twelve bucks. It is, uh, but I think the difference was this was so overt. Whereas those were incremental changes. This yeah, was so yeah. obvious. They removed all sorts of perks and made them paid for experiences like car parking at Disney World. You know, at Disney World hotels, that used to be free. Now it's $25 a night. The bus that went from the airport to, uh, to the parks used to be free. Now that's, that's not even there for, you know, they've, they've cut costs. Yada, yada, yada. I've written a whole post on this that I could talk about for hours if I'm honest with you. But I won't. I think the point being that I came back from that holiday a little bit miffed and thinking, I wonder if other people have this experience, not with Disney, but this, this paradox with brands where they, they love them so much, but they feel as though they, they don't have a relationship with them anymore. Uh, and the first person I spoke to was Pep Liar, uh, who runs CXL. Uh, and I don't know, one became 10, 10 became 20, 20 became 50. And then, 50 came 153 i think it was in the end and i ended up thinking okay other people have this problem of what i term like relationship marketing feeling as a consumer that there's 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 like there's no i in consumer there's a me i think um I, it's almost like the person in the need to be personable with a brand uh and so i explored this topic which is all about personalization and wrote about it and hence wrote a book about it. Again, semi-accidentally, but maybe some of the best success comes from accidents. Who knows? And you grew a beard. I grew a beard to keep me motivated, yeah, and anti-motivator. We so how long did that take to write that book? Uh, six months? No, that's a lie. The research process was about four or five months. The writing was about four or five months. The editing was about four or five months. Yeah, probably anywhere between 12 and 18 months. It depends what you call writing. Yeah. And that's out for publish now, isn't it? And didn't I see, though, that you, you did all that and you gave it a title and then someone told you that title already existed? It's the end of July. It'll be out. But yeah, you're right. So I called it the person in personalization, which I thought was nice. 
And then my editor came around and was like, nope, it's rubbish. <laughs> she called it something else. So we called it the personalization paradox. Went with that, literally sent it off with the book cover and everything. And then I had a conversation with someone at an event. And he's like, hmm, I'm not pretty sure that book already exists. I've read it. And I Googled it, and it's true. It exists. <laughs> so we reverted the title back to The Person in Personalization, which I feel is more, more apt. Uh, anyway, so, yeah, who knows? And when does that come out? July? End of, well, it should be the end of July. It keeps getting put back. I'm not in control of it. Six, between six weeks from now. Well, it's mid-June now, so it should be end of and July. And why does it get put back? Oh, just deadlines and people going on holiday and stuff like that. There's, there's proofreaders and editors and designers. There's all sorts of people involved. So, yeah, it's, it's been it's a trying process. Mm. Much harder than I thought it would be. Much harder. Yeah, I can imagine. So then... So then you were like, well, what's next? And how did, the, um, how did the new platform then? So just tell us a bit about that. How did that come about? So the new platform, so, so I own a new business now, business number two called Made of Intent. And it is a product business, not an agency, because I've learned my, learned my ways with that. It's a product that allows retailers to understand the intent of their audience. And I found that if we're talking about putting the person back into personalization, the only way to do that is to understand the context of the individual that you're thinking about. It doesn't have to be done at an individual level. It just means listening more. And I was greatly influenced by, um, by the world of football, right? I know you're fo- you, you love your football. Well, we had a conversation, didn't we, about this XG? This was yeah. a few months, well, quite a while ago, I think, wasn't it? It was, yeah. So... The concept of XG is expected goals. For those who are listening to this and you don't know football, I'll briefly explain it to you. Football has had a, had a problem in the mid-2000s that a goal, which is the objective of a football match, is a very rare event, three or less in a Premier League, right? Or six or more if you talk about United Spurs. <laughs> um, and to combat that, what they, what they tried to do is they tried to create a predictive metric called expected goals, which is they looked at all the attributes that form a goal, the angle of the shot, the distance of the shot, the possession of play before the shot, uh, to understand whether a goal would occur. So it focuses on the quality of the chance, not necessarily the quantity retrospective figure of our goal. And this is now the most popularized term in global football. We use it every day. Um, And they also have not just XG, but XA for expected six, XP for expected possession, a whole host of expected predictive metrics that understand whether a goal or a outcome will occur. I think the same problem exists within e-commerce. There we have this global retrospective binary figure of conversion rate, which uh, is on average 2%. Uh, It's highly aggregated. And I feel if we were to apply the same methodologies as expected from expected goals to e-commerce, we could be in a very nice competitive position. We can start to actually understand metrics that are aligned to the consumer, not necessarily to the business. So instead of expected goals, it's expected conversion. Instead of expected assist, it's expected uh, add to bag. Instead of expected possession, it's expected engagement. This is basically the concepts of Moneyball, if you've ever seen it. You know, Brad Pitt, the Billy Bean story, Oakland days, yada, yada, Mm. yada. Uh, The whole, you know, don't focus on the home run, focus on getting on base. It's the same concept. I think bringing it over to the world of e-commerce is, I know, really resonates with me and my experience anyways. So is it a bit like um, an expected conversion could be that they've shown all the, all the signs of making a purchase and they get to the checkout page, for example, and the delivery price could be David De Gea in goal saving it, which should be an expected goal. But Exactly, yeah. It was, it's all about the concept of intent. 
what level of intent do you have to purchase? So think about, think about it like this, Chris. Think about remarketing. Why do we remarket to people who show no signs of intent whatsoever? Surely that's a waste of an impression or a click. Why don't we only remarket to those who show a level of intent that is not so high that they're going to convert anyways, but that is almost winnable, let's say. You know, why do we focus on showing social proof messages? Buy now, only 10 left in stock, you know, 50 people have looked at this. To those people who have just landed on their site, who have no intent whatsoever of purchasing at that moment in time, yet you're using what I'm going to call manipulative measures to try and encourage them to purchase there and then in that session. It feels like we're But are we not getting manipulated by the platforms there? So Google Ads, you know, we're going retargeting. I'm not sure, maybe we can, but can we decipher that they've visited X, Y, and Z pages and therefore we're going to retarget to them? Or is it not you just can, a case that they've bounced on the website? Pages don't determine intent. Think about well, all that have viewed or, or followed a certain journey, basically. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, your, that's what you're trying to achieve. I think that the problem that we exhibit today with retailers is that there's, there's a, a misconstrued understanding of what intent is. There's two forms. There's direction of intent. So I'm in the car, I'm in the industry to buy a Maserati or a Ford. And then there's a strength of intent, which is I'm in the, I, how much do I want to buy the Maserati or the Ford? And we focus on the strength of intent, not the direction. The direction is a world of recommendations and uh, helping you find the right product, which is only, say, one third of the entire battle of, of, of a purchasing decision. It's not necessarily about what product to purchase. It's about understanding how that product will solve your needs as an individual. I think the strength of intent helps you understand that as a metric. And I think that's all about putting the person back into personalization anyways which is, does the person really want this item? And if so, how can you help be more appropriate to them at the stage of their consideration journey? It's not all about buy now, buy now, buy now. It's about educating them and nurturing them. It's not all about session-based conversion, for goodness sake. See, I get quite passionate about this. No, it's good. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I found like there's an existential crisis of we focus so much on this aggregated figure of conversion rate that is binary, it's rare, in the similar way that football did in the 2000s. And I think we could translate it into being more customer-centric, being honest with you. I think expected conversion trademark does that. So how does it work then? Uh, how does intent work? How does, how does your platform work? So how does, uh, what, what sort of metrics does it look at? What sort of data does it look so at? The, the two biggest metrics, the two biggest attributes that we look at are time and specificity. The quicker you do something and the more specific you are in your actions and behaviours indicate a high level of intent of doing that. That thing. If, if you want a pint of milk at the supermarket, you go straight to the milk aisle and you'll get there quicker than if you know you didn't want a pint of milk, for example. Mm. So we find that in our models, time and specificity are two big factors in understanding the intent of the audience. We're all talking about real time and context here. Okay. It's something that, goodness, Google have used for seven years. TikTok use it primarily within their algorithm, or by dance, primarily within their algorithm. Uh, Pinterest, Spotify, uh, Microsoft and Bing, they all use intent in their models because it's, it understands the context in the individual and it's a real-time measure of what is happening there and then, which is a more accurate predictor of something that's retrospective and binary. So it, for me, Chris, it's all about listening more. So we take about 120 or so micro behaviors. I call them micro. I mean like the time it takes for you to reach the search bar, not just did the user use the search bar. 
the time it takes for users to read reviews and how many they read, not just user read reviews. So these micro behaviors are pulled together, modeled in a regression and anal um, analysis form to understand whether the user will or will not achieve a behavior, an action, and gives it a propensity score. And it's not just purchase, it's will they return? Will they add to back? Will they, are they likely to abandon? So, you know, we can measure and we predict all these types of behaviors based on what they've previously done and how important those attributes are in that ranking factor within those models. And is this a piece of software then that sort of sits on the site and watches each user? Yeah, it's a, it's a tagging script, basically, server-side tagging script that, um, again, takes all these attributes, models them together, and outputs it in a platform. And you can see it's a visual dashboard that shows you where, where your intent lies with, uh, based on traffic source or device or whatever segment it is that you want to create. And then you can action that, which I think is the most notable thing. If you identify someone of low intent landing on... Uh, these types of product pages that focus on I don't know, beauty equipment or whatever, you can create what we call nudges to be more appropriate to their needs. It's not about saying that there's only 10 left in stock. That's not appropriate to them at that point in time. It's not about giving them a discount. That's not appropriate. It's about saying that, hey, we're this brand. Let us tell you about our story. It's about saying, did you know that this product in particular is one of our best sellers, not just a random product. Did you know that we have over 10,000 products for you to look at? It's more appropriate messaging to that segment. And I feel that is the, I don't know, the more ethical alignment route that is really inherent within me that I've seen. There's a quote in my book from an FBI director called Robin Drake, and he said, the difference between persuasion and manipulation is intent. And I think that happens in all walks of life, and that's what I'm trying to address within e-commerce. So if we, if we took me on the Nike website, for example, then, like, how much could you personalize that experience? So, for example, me on Nike, I'm a bit of a sucker for Nike, so I will, you know, you can sell to me quite easily, even if I've got a low intent, if I see something, <laughs> yeah. I'll buy it. But at the same time, I'm not interested in, I don't know, certain types of sport clothing or whatever. I'm going to go on there for golf, for gym wear, for, for sort of lifestyle stuff, trainers maybe. Can you manipulate that experience for me by visitor on that website to just show me more of the stuff that I'm likely to buy? And, and you know, I shouldn't have well, to search you're, you're, for, you're for golf. You're thinking about affinity. You're thinking about whether you are more like your, whether you have a, a greater affinity with sports wearing golf rather than the strength of how much you're going to buy there and then in that session or in a future session. We don't handle affinity. Affinity is like recommendations and what have you. So let's assume that's all done for you. So let's what say I'm... I see a pair of trainers then. Yeah. Uh, or I'm scrolling through the trainers. So again, Nike trainers is, you know, there's hundreds of pairs, isn't there? What are the, what are the things you're looking at there? Because I'm going to click on a few products. Is it how long I'm spending on that product? What, what are the signs? Yeah, what are, what are your engagement level? I mean, we, I can't tell you what that is. The models will ultimately say, what are the predicted behaviors that indicate Chris is going to add this product to his basket, for example? But it would be things like engagement. It would be things like, have you seen this before? Are you a loyal customer of Nike or not? Uh, it would be things like, how many times have you visited that product before, which indicate a signal of intent? It'd be like, have you clicked and checked the size guide, for example, I don't know, to demonstrate that you have a high level of intent or engagement with this item. Could it categorize based on what I've bought before? So can it understand what trainers, the, the style um, of trainers that I'm likely to buy? Right now, no, but I, 
I mean, the future of the product, it goes a way of feeding other data sources into it or vice versa as well, using that as a data source for other things. Because it's so, screaming AI as well. Like, where does AI fall into this? Because well, it's that's... Less, it's less AI and more, more machine learning than anything right. else. Um, Will so AI come into it? It can do, absolutely. I mean, think of um, generating product descriptions that are appropriate to your needs at that point in time. Hey, Chris, we noticed you've, you've viewed this 50 times already. Mm. Just go and fuck can I swear? Go and bloody swear. Uh, <laughs> whatever it might be. So you can use some level of AI to be more generative, uh, to create things that will, I don't know, uh, be more persuasive to you at that point in time. I think the, the point to me is, is appropriate messaging at appropriate times. People often use the term personalization as right place, right message, right time. I think the word appropriate is missing from all those things. So really that's what I'm trying to, trying to bring to this world. It's also, just for reference, a method of prioritization um, that I think most people tend to overlook. The whole concept of Moneyball was finding value where it was once overlooked. We could talk about Brentford or Brighton or AZ Alkmaar or... Uh, well, that, I saw a great post from you on, on that AZ Alkmaar. Yeah, I mean, I think, was it Arsene Wenger brought sort of data? Was it him or was it Sam Allardyce? Someone... It was, yeah, it was Wenger. Uh, I mean, the theoretically, it was actually, unfortunately, Liverpool that brought it over to the UK uh, because uh, Klopp worked with the guy who worked uh, at Boston Red Sox who originally worked at Oakland A's and the Boston Red Sox group own and Liverpool Fenway Sports Group. Um, and they're the ones that, you know, they bought Mane because for 40 million because they found value where it was overlooked. They bought Salah who, you know, who was a Chelsea reject to find value where it was overlooked, blah, 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 blah. Um, and that's the whole concept of what it is that we're trying to do here is help you find value where it was once overlooked. It gives you a competitive edge mm. because there are certain people that will buy, certain people that might not buy, and it helps you prioritize the winnables, the people that can be persuaded or leave, if the people are going to buy anyways, just leave them a hell alone. Don't, you know, protect your margin. Don't give them a 10% off discount. Do your thing. Let them do their thing. Focus on the segments that are truly customer-centric, not the ones that are really arbitrary of, it's a repeat purchaser who lands on a PDP and visits this category. It feels very business-centric to talk like that. That's why we speak about things in PDP and PLP and basket and checkout. For goodness sake, we talk about page experience, not user experience. Mm. All, all I'm trying to do is bring back to the forefront the notion of be, you know, who there is behind the screen. That's all. Um, so how does it, um, you know, do you need an email address? Does it need an IP address? How, how does it uh, work? In terms no, it's of... all an anonymous in terms of its, its ID facilitation. Um, and, and it just strings those IDs together. It uses, uh, doesn't use cookies. We use local storage instead. It's server-side tagging. Uh, and like I said, you know, the intention is to utilize other data sources. Um, imagine feeding this into your CRM, for example, to understand these customers haven't purchased yet, but have a high intent to do so. Mm. Great. What are you going to do with that information? I don't know. That's not for me to tell you, but I'm giving you the info, giving you the the opportunity to do something with that. And then, can that move outside the website? So, you know, can it form lists to, you know, up the bids or put custom labels on shopping? I, or? I think that's where the value lies, personally, um, which is the ability to take the the notion of intent, whether it's abandon, add to bag, uh, viewing a product or purchasing. And taking that information and applying it to other data sources, think of experimentation. If I can experiment with a certain audience who have a different level of intent, then fabulous. Uh, so yeah, I think that's where the majority of the value lies.
And then how does Google sort of compare to this then? Because obviously on their Google Ads, for example, you, know, you could, we've seen examples in the past of people paying hundreds of pounds for a click because yeah. you know, they're convinced that this guy is, or guy or lady or whatever is going to buy you know, based on this click. It's worth spending all this money on this one click for your ad because their data is showing that this person's likely to convert. Yeah, I mean, they use intent and affinity uh, the same custom, uh, concept and you can use custom intent and custom affinity you can feed that into the platform if you so wish i i'm just slightly concerned that google has a motive behind that which is to get a higher price as possible yeah and we've seen and um, i've got a good friend russell mccarthy who shows some data about facebook pixels for example how manipulative those are and how untrue they are uh, because again, Facebook has a motive to do a certain thing, which is to get a click, not necessarily one that's that's realised, but just some level of attention more than anything else. So I mean, that's a huge. I mean, yeah, a huge challenge is attribution, isn't it? And in terms of especially Facebook, been, right? because if you look at Facebook numbers, you know, if you, if you walked past you ten metres away, they'll claim that you viewed their ad and, and take hundred percent of the purchase. And I think that's, yeah. that's one of the biggest problems. But surely they have the capability to be more accurate in their, their tracking, but surely they're motivated the by is, money, aren't they, they? Because do they want to be, yeah, well, I, I, I would argue they probably don't because if you, if you did look at the actual data, they'd probably find that they're not accountable for as many sales as they claim. And, exactly. and that messes so up their entire advertising careful. model, doesn't it? Mm, maybe we, I mean we've all seen the social dilemma we all know that Facebook's model is all based on attention mm. and monetizing attention so it totally makes sense you could put two and two together put it that way I'm not I'm not blaming or accusing anyone uh, but Darth Zuckerberg might have an ulterior motive <laughs> um, so yeah I, I guess like the thing that I'd bring attention to is that we're focusing on the quality of traffic not necessarily the quantity we're giving you the ability to understand the composition of your traffic and how what the quality levels are within that. Like, are you sending good quality traffic to your site that uh, uh, purports in like a low abandonment and a higher conversion uh, and a higher engagement level than, than anything else? I think if you focus more on quality than quantity, you'll get to a place where you are much more efficient in your spend. And that's what intent does. So, yeah, I feel like I'm plugging it. I'm not supposed to, you know, there's no intention. No, it's really interesting. We're supposed it's, to be about agencies. <laughs> it's new to the market and, um, you know, it's not been done, has it? And I think one of the things I wanted to ask as well is how did you go about building this? Because obviously you've got that idea, but you're not a developer, are you? No, no. I, I mean, so we originally outsourced it uh, just to prove the hypothesis. Like, can you measure intent repeatedly? Uh, I think the original hypothesis is can you measure intent? uh on a on an e-commerce website and we've sat i outsourced that uh to a contractor and we satisfied that hypothesis yes you can then the second hypothesis is can you do that repeatedly so can you measure uh, one level of website's intent against another completely different website and the answer was yes you can uh we found that the behaviors were extremely similar even though the products was very different i mean come on every every client or retailer I've ever worked with has said, we're very unique in everything that we do. But really the structure of the website, the behaviors that people exhibit are exactly the same. It's just some are more considered than others. And I think that's one of the big difference. So we satisfied those two hypotheses and like, okay. So I chucked a bunch of money at it, uh, said, can we do this thing? Can we, you know, can we hire some people to help us build it? We got a few clients along the way. Uh, and the answer was yes, we, we can. Uh, so it's, all, it's just comes from my experimentation approach of 
can we prove this hypothesis? Yes or no? Can we validate it? Yes or no? Do people want it? It's certainly seen that way. Um, whether people are ready for it, I think is a different question. Um, and we'll, we'll, soon, we'll soon figure that out. Mm. I think people definitely resonate with the concept, though. I don't know if you feel that, Chris. Oh, definitely. I think it's, um, you know, it's, it's same with B2B in a way, isn't it? It's all a bit clunky. So you think about, you know, if we're outreaching to a potential client or whatever or trying to nurture a relationship, and again, you've got that CRM, and you've got things like LinkedIn ads, which is, you know, they've, they've got quite basic. Everything's quite basic in terms of, you know, this person visited your website or this person visited your profile or whatever, isn't it? Yeah. Can you add a layer on top of that that's, that's a little bit more sophisticated? Because... Yeah, it's it's a sign and it's a signal, but and you know, as advertisers, you're happy to pay that bit extra for that because it feels like it's got more chance of conversion. But there's it's pretty basic, really, of what's but out there. I mean, that's it? the thing. B two B have been doing this for years, using intent data to understand mm. whether someone's going to purchase or not, and therefore it allows you to prioritize your resources towards that person. Why is it not moved over to B two C? The mm. big tech have been using it for years, like I mentioned. Google first introduced. Uh, the notion of intent way back in 2015 under Rank Brain, right? And instead of typing in two words like, I don't know, Ace Ventura, they didn't, say t they didn't just see two words and 13 characters, whatever it is. They, saw, they tried to understand the context behind, well, was it Ace Ventura 1 or Ace Ventura 2? Are you after the trivia behind it or the actors behind it? Are you, do you want to watch it or do you, you, know, you want to just get more information on it? And they tried to get that context, which is why now you see prioritized images and videos and what have you, um, that allow, allow Google to understand why you're doing what you're doing, not just what you're doing, what you're doing. So <laughs> bringing it into the e-commerce e sphere feels kind of natural. I, I always remember a conversation with Land Rover way back in the day when they said um, their conversion rate, as you can imagine, was like 0 point something percent. And the reason why is, do you know what their main audience was in their demographics in GA? It was 14-year-old boys who were pissing about with a car configurator, basically, <laughs> who had zero intent to purchase, but they wanted to map out what their dream car was. Yeah, yeah. Now, they were remarketing and they were focusing on that type of audience. What happens if they could understand the level of intent that that audience had, exclude them, and only focus on the people that actually had a level of intent in order to do something and action? That's all we're trying to do. Right? That, that example always sticks in my mind. So is this, is this out now? Can people use it? Can people? It's not. About th you've got about four weeks. Oh, so wow. So you've got a lot going on this summer then, haven't you? A there is, yeah. yeah. No holidays for me. Yeah, new book, the end of July. And then we, I mean, we already have our V1. We already have some clients and exhibiting some really good results, I must say. Um, and we feel as though this will be ready publicly around mid-July. So, yeah, watch this space, I guess. Mm. It's exciting. As a football fan, you must, you must resonate with, you know, the type of uh, things that I'm telling you. Well, there's lots of this conversation. Yeah, I mean, particularly the, um, you know, as a Spurs fan, falling out of love with the actual experience and uh, yeah. just getting sold to, really, is, is one <laughs> yeah. of the biggest. <laughs> must frustrate you, buddy. Must frustrate me. I've been there as a United fan, right? Being Still am now. Very this dull experience and, and paying the same price for it, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully it'll get more exciting this season, though. Yeah, well. If the team shows some intent. Yeah, I think there's a difference between intent and ambition, but yeah. <laughs> well, there's intent as well. <laughs> they kick off and they, they don't bother doing anything it's, uh, or pass backwards. <laughs> it's fascinating how often we use the term intent as well. 
Uh, but we never capitalise on that. Uh, I find it really interesting. But look, I'm a sucker. I'm totally biased. This is, this is my life. I really believe in it. I think, uh, have you ever heard of the Ikigai model? No. The Ikigai model is like a Japanese philosophy and model of four Venn diagrams. See if I get this right. It's uh, what you love, what you're good at, what you could sell, and what other people would want to buy. I think this is your volition. These two Venn diagrams are your volition. These two Venn diagrams are your profession. And then there's your passion and your mission. That's it. If you merge those things together, you get a centric point right in the middle, which is all about what it is that you should do because it's what you love, what you're good at, what you can sell and what others would buy. For me, this is it. And having owned an agency completely accidentally and never going through that process, that reflective process of what it is that I want to do in my life, and it never really feeling mission-orientated or value-orientated, for me, Chris, being completely honest with you, I feel so much purpose in what it is that I'm doing. Uh, I am really, really happy. Um, yeah, and I never was previously. Well, that's good. Well, enjoyment is, is part of it, right? You've got to enjoy what you're doing. Well, absolutely. I think, but I think some people lose that um, because they can get so, they can lose perspective and they can get myopically focused on, on this one thing. We spoke about, you know, like me being so focused on my business and losing my relationship with Max for a couple of years, something I'll never get back. Mm. And you can look at it in retrospect, but I've almost got like a second chance here, both with another child not like I've got a bad relationship with Max. Unfortunately, he sports Liverpool, though, so I think he's a gunner, as far as I'm concerned. I mean, that's that two years of neglect right there, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. I should have taken him to more games. Damn it. Uh, but, yeah, for me, it's a really interesting journey. So is, um, is this it now? Is this what you're going to focus on for the next few years? What's the plans with it? I think so, Chris, yeah. I think I, there's just so much purpose in it for me. I, uh, I love doing it. I love spreading this message of be more human about about how we're approaching e-commerce i think it's an absolute challenge as well because look we only focus on one thing and that's the moolah isn't it but i think there's another approach there's a more there's a better approach focusing on retention and loyalty rather than immediate session based uh, money in the back pocket uh and it matters to me you know, because of my love with Disney and my identity with United and maybe I'm just getting older and I need some salt for the chip on my shoulder, who knows? But for me, it's just, it, it really resonates and I feel so strong about it. Um, if I can make a difference, amazing. I want to move people. If I'd, we, we do have a mission at work and the mission is to move people in the boardroom away from thinking about pure quantity and more towards quality. That's really important. Yeah, it's really good. And hopefully you'll get it on Disney's website. <laughs> That's the dream. I That's always wanted dream. Disney as a from client. Disney I, store. I, remember, I remember once uh, at user conversion having the opportunity to pitch to Disney. Okay. Someone said, you can pitch to Disney. It's like, great. And I remember going to the office. It said Hammersmith. Uh, walking in, just being in awe, seeing like a you know, full-on stormtrooper, just greet me, stuff like this. And they have um, different boardrooms a themed a winnie the pooh room and a moana room and all this i was like great so what room am i in and they say oh you're just in this shitty little closet cupboard over here <laughs> and i spoke to some exec who didn't know what they were doing you know not not like a senior decision maker in an unthemed room i felt totally underwhelmed by the whole experience <laughs> so don't work for your heroes you know they always say that right
Well, yeah, they do say don't meet your heroes, don't, don't they? Meet yeah, exactly. Your heroes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a shame. Who knows? We'll see what happens. See what happens. Oh, that's brilliant. Well, thank you very much for coming on, mate. It's been a pleasure talking to you as always. Yeah, you too, buddy. Nice you one. Too. Cheers. Good one. You've been listening to Confessions of an Agency Owner with me, Chris Ailey. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, subscribe to my newsletter, and find out more about my agency at honchosearch.com. And don't forget to hit the subscribe button. Until next time.